Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're joined by Rolin Bailey, who is the Vice President of Investor Relations for Equinox Gold. I'm thrilled that we we're able to have this conversation, as Equinox is a remarkable story. But what's more interesting to me is Rolin's experience in leading investor relations as they grew from a handful of employees to become a global gold producer with thousands of employees and over a $2 billion market cap. Rolin makes the point that her IR marketing strategy was analogous to dressing for the job you want to have. In other words, being present in the places where you want to be. In our conversation, Rolin talks us through how the IR industry has changed over her career and how she continues to engage with the market. As an investor brand perspective, I was intrigued by Equinox's approach and how they're looking to differentiate their story in the market. We also get into a topic which some like to debate. That's the value of retail investors and if, how, and why they are important. I really appreciated her nuanced view on this. This is a great interview for anyone contemplating their approach to investor relations. It is also a really interesting view into Equinox Gold, which has become a wonderful success story led by some of the legends in the mining industry. With this or any of our interviews, please note that this information is not intended and shall not be construed as financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I and all related parties disclaim any liability for information provided here and recommend that any and all investment decisions be made through the advice of an accredited investment advisor. As well, I do want to thank Olympia Trust Company for their ongoing support of this podcast. They've been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years, and they strive to deliver on their promise of making it personal. That all said, enjoy the show. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corey. I am looking forward to our interview as, well, just this, the, the quick time we've taken for a pre-call and to get into some of the stories of the mining industry and some of the work you've done over your career in the mining industry. And, you know, I think we're going to have a good interview. So the best place for us to start is with uh, an introduction on yourself. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll pass it over to you. Well, that could take up a whole hour. So my introduction to mining was purely by accident. I actually have a degree in environmental studies and biology. If you'd asked me when I was 19, 20, what I was going to be when I grew up, I would have said I'd be you know, the next Diana Fossey out saving the world and living in the jungle. And what actually happened was I moved from Ontario to Vancouver and needed a job for just a couple of months until I went to UBC to finish up my last term of school. And I could always type really quickly. So I got a job as a secretary and I got offered a three-day contract at a company called Placer Dome as a temp secretary. And the three days turned into 11 years in finance, of all things. I'd never even done an accounting. 
course. So 11 years in finance. And then when Placer Dome got taken out by Barrick in 2006, I loved my job in finance. I loved my job in mining. It's an incredible industry with incredible people. And I was learning something every day, but it wasn't really what I wanted to be when I grew up. I never thought I'd be doing finance, but I'd always, again, sort of thought, you know, what's going to suit me? What's going to help me feel fulfilled? And I'd always loved writing and editing. And so I sort of applied for a few different communications jobs because I was doing a bit of writing and editing on the side. So finance during the day, writing and editing at night. I got offered a job in investor relations at Nova Gold Resources. That was 2006. So I transferred from Placer Dome when it got taken over. You know, four days later, I was working at Nova Gold and uh, in investor relations. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So my job in investor relations was a bit of an accident. And my job in mining was absolutely an accident, but it's been the best accident ever. So coming up 27 years now in the industry. It's kind of a funny way how we fall into these things. And and actually, when I did a bit of research, and I saw that, you know, the the background in environmental sciences, and then a step into the world of investor relations for mining companies. So I was, hmm, that's an interesting, interesting leap. But well, it's actually the perfect fit because investor relations, we're like the jack of all trades. You don't need to know everything about every department. You just need to know enough to be able to explain it to investors, right? So you need to know a little bit about finance. I got that in my 11 years at Placer. You need to know about the technical side of things. I got that with my biology degree. You need to know about the community side of things. I got that with my environmental studies degree. You need to be able to communicate and write and do a bit of math. So we kind of, you like I draw on all of my my skill set and my background almost every day in my job. Yeah, yeah. Well, so give us, you're now the VP of Investor Relations for Equinox Gold. And, and so give us a background there for the listeners who, who aren't fully up to speed on Equinox. And, and then we can dive into some of the questions in and around what you're doing and what you've seen. Sure. So I joined um, Equinox Gold in October of 2016, I guess it was, I was employee number six. So we had the, a management team of five people had taken over management of a of a mine in Brazil that was on care and maintenance. The, the previous management team had tried to put it in production. They operated for about a year. It wasn't going very well. So they'd shut it down and they brought in a brand new management team to try to turn this project around. And again, they got a, you know, I just got a call out of the blue from the CEO that said, hey, we're looking for investor relations. We're just starting to ramp up this company, ramp up this team. Are you interested? And and I sort of always, and I try to say, the, say this to my kids, like, if an opportunity you're not expecting comes across your desk, like take a look at it and, you know, you never know. You never know what it's going to turn into. My three-day temp secretary contract at Placer Dome turned into an incredibly rewarding career. So when I got this call out of the blue, I thought, sure, why not? I'll go talk to this guy. And it just sounded like an interesting opportunity. And I, I wanted, I like the idea of building something. Like they had this one single project that wasn't doing very well, but they had this vision of building a really significant, profitable, sustainable, environmentally responsible mind mining company. And I liked that vision. So I said, sure. And I and I joined the team. And that was 2016. And then March of 2017, we did a, a merger with another company that brought us a bit of cash and a couple of copper assets, but things really kicked into, into high speed at the end of 2017, when Ross Beatty joined us. And we did a three way merger and Ross joined us as the chairman. And he's like, we are going to build the next big gold mining company. He said, we're mm. going to do it the right way. We're going to be, we're going to grow quickly because he thought that the, that the gold price was going to start to run. He says, we're going to pick up a bunch of assets. We're going to build this company and we're going to be the best 
premier America's gold mining company in the world, and we're going to do it all in five years. And we all went, holy smokes, those are pretty, <laughs> those are pretty um, uh, stiff marching orders. But Ross is incredibly enthusiastic, and he's a visionary, and and we all just got excited about his vision, and and we sort of kicked things into into high gear. So we did a bunch of M and A, acquired and our first producing mine in 2018, acquired a company called Leah Gold Mining in 2020 that brought us a big development stage project and four more producing mines. And then uh, did another acquisition in 2021 that bought us the mine that we're building right now, which is going to be the fourth largest open pit gold mine in Canada. So it's been incredibly rapid growth to put together this portfolio of assets that's going to deliver the growth that we ultimately want to achieve, which is sort of being a million ounce gold producer, paying a nice chunky dividend to our investors and um, and building what we're hoping will be the premier America's gold producer. So it's been a pretty exciting ride. It's been incredibly busy, a lot of growth in such a short period of time. Like when we look back at what we've accomplished in just five years, it's extraordinary. And we're going to pretty much double in size again over the next five years. So it's never going to be a dull place to work, but I'm incredibly proud of, proud of what the team has achieved so far. And it's again, it's that 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 vision of building something like you know we're not all just I hope we're I'm certainly not I hope the rest of the team isn't like we're not here for a paycheck we're here because we're excited about what we're building which is which is going to be like an incredibly profitable gold company that's bringing value to our employees and bringing value to our community partners and that's been the key to our success I think is just this real genuine desire to be successful but to do it the right way I guess is the best way of explaining it. I appreciate it. And one of the things that I like about doing these video interviews is, you know, for our listeners who are listening, I can see the passion in your body language. I can see it in your <laughs> smile. Like I can, and, and that enthusiasm, it's really, really interesting. And I mean, for, for size, like you joined as, as the sixth employee on, and now you've got a $2 billion market cap I, when I check. Yeah. And we've got, you know, over 6,000 people in our workforce around the world. We've got seven producing mines. We're building an eighth mine. Yeah. It's pretty exceptional to look at what we've done over this short period of time, but I, it really is. It's the enthusiasm and what we're building that, that gets me excited about going to work every day. Like, you know, and I try to say that to my kids, like, like, don't just look at the paycheck that you're bringing home. Like, look at the people that you're surrounded by and look at what you're all trying to achieve. And do you feel like you're part of a team where everybody's pulling in the same direction? I mean, that's what gets you through the day, right? Is feeling like you're all working together to build something bigger than yourselves. And it's, yeah, it's been really fun. That's amazing. So I want to touch on a, uh, an experience I had and I wrote an article about it, which is, is far more colorful than the paraphrase I'll give here. But when I was about 16, I got myself an hour or so with, uh, one of the partners of Canaccord when mm-hmm. Canaccord Capital was, you know, based out of Vancouver and they're moving tons of, tons of deals kind of thing. And I get into his office, I sit down, he's like, what do you want? Kind of thing. Why are you here? And I talk with him, talk and start asking questions. And, and right as I'm about to leave, I'm like, any final advice for me before I leave? And he pauses this gentleman and he looks at me and he, he goes, never overlook an opportunity. Absolutely. And I go, Okay. And I go, why? And he says, in the 90s, I'm an investment banker. I'm making money hand over fist. And one of my clients comes to me and says, we love the work you've been doing for us, but we've got an opportunity for you. And you know, we want you to, we want you to run with this. And he turned it down. And I go, what was the opportunity? And he goes, Bic Lighters. 
he was going to get the exclusive rights for North America for Bic, Bic lighters. And he turned it down. And I, excuse me, I think it was before, it was before the nineties that, but if you look, those are on every shelf and in all over the place, but it came down. He's like, my ego got in the way, never overlook an opportunity. I was like, Whoa, what a, so I, I really, I appreciate the advice you give your kids because it is, it's a, it's a real powerful Anybody, thing. Anybody, you never know when you start out what, it's going to grab your attention and get you excited or, you know, like what, like that, that, you know, that, again, that three day contract, I could have done that, a, taken that a thousand different directions, but, you know, just always being open to what comes in front of you and giving it a shot. You can always say no later. You can always change your mind, right? But if you at least start down the path and you get a sense of what you're dealing with and is it the right fit for you? And yeah, things grow. I think, I think things grow, things grow based on enthusiasm. If you're enthusiastic about what you're doing, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's still, it's always fun. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about your role in investor relations and what you've been doing and and how has that changed with let's let's keep it within the context of Equinox because as in that role you're you're working with your investors, you're communicating, you've got retail institutions, like there's a lot going on. How is that how has that evolved for you, especially through the growth? Yeah, so Equinox Gold is actually a good example because it has changed so significantly in these five years. So when I started, we had no analyst coverage. So no analysts that were writing the stock up. We had maybe 10 or 15% institutional investors and the West was was either retail or corporate. So it was a very small audience and it was just getting out there and, and telling the story and saying sort of, you know, watch this space. Like this is what we want to do. This is what our vision is. At least even if you're not going to invest today, at least listen to this story so you can see if we're successful, right? And I think because I'd been in the industry for a while and our CEO had as well, people took those meetings just as a a courtesy. They had no intention of investing in the company. We had this project that everybody thought would never be successful, but at least out of out of courtesy, they were willing to meet with us, which I should also speaks volumes to investor relations and just the life in general. It's about relationships, right? Like you always want to make sure that you're keeping those relationships um, alive and valuable and, and that people respect you and, and want to talk to you. That's going to save your career down the road. You never know when you're going to need those relationships again. So for me, it's been a bit of a luxury because I have a strange name. So I can call people up 15 or 20 years later and say, hey, it's Relin calling. And they actually remember me because um, <laughs> yep. my name. But anyway, so when we started out, it was very much just getting out there, just reaching deep, deep into our Rolodex. And I'm dating myself there because I don't think Rolodex exists anymore. But and just getting out there and telling the story. But as we started to grow, and then, you know, we've done a couple of mergers, and I said, you know, it really kicked into high gear when, when Ross joined us, but then the whole investor base changed. And, and um, now we have like 61% or over 60% institutional ownership, we have 11 different banks covering us so 11 analysts that I that I speak to regularly. We still got a very significant retail following in the US and in Europe. And a lot of that was from a bunch of newsletter writers that were covering us in the early days. But certainly um, the people that I speak to have have evolved over those five years. But the, the foundation of investor relations is, is relationships and communications. And that never changes regardless of the size of the company. And, and how, how do you develop those relationships? you know, through the communication and, and even the cadence, the kind of materials you send them, how have you been able to develop relationships that stick and, and, and actually get attention that turns into conviction of, uh, of buying? I think the number one success in my career has been accessibility. 
like always making sure that you get back to people. If they send an email, if they send, if they call you, if they reach out in whatever shape that is, making sure you get back to them quickly and transparency. So, so people need to invest your relations. Your the entire success of your career is based on people believing you, you being credible and honest and having them know that you're going to tell them the truth. It's not always, it's not always happy stories, right? There's always struggles. Mining's an up and down industry and we have good years and bad years and, and just being honest with people and letting them see what's actually going on in the company. And it's with a fine line. I always get people calling me saying, you know, the share price is down today. What does the market know that I don't know? Well, that, you know, now that we're talking about insider uh, information, obviously I can't tell you anything that the market doesn't know, but they still need to come off the phone feeling like you've been honest with them and have told them as much as you possibly can. And in, and even when people are mean, like in some of those downtimes, I get horrible emails <laughs> from people. I would imagine. But I always reply and people are shocked. They're like, oh, wow, I did not expect to get a response. And it completely changes the, the tenor of that conversation because you took the time to get back to them. You took the time to listen to their concerns and then it always changes that relationship and it's more positive going forward. And my favorite story was someone sent a horrible email to me um, and signed it. Um, F you. I you remember my New Year's resolution that I'm not swearing anymore, so I won't swear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. F you. Okay. <laughs> and, and I replied and I said, dear Mr. You, it's a pleasure to hear from you. And so I pretended that I thought the first word was his first name. And I thought it was hilarious. And he did too. And it, you know, it's been this long lasting relationship now where he's invested in multiple companies because he knows that, that I'm going to get back and, and we'll address whatever the issues are. So I think that's been the key to success with relationships is just knowing that, you know, I've worked for some companies that were really successful and some that weren't, but it's never been my integrity at question. They always know that I'm working hard and then I'm looking out for the investors. And, and that's the thing too, is like every investor matters. And, and sometimes, you know, people on my team will say like, why are you spending so much time with that retail investor? They probably own 10 shares. Well, those are the people that need me the most. Like the institutional investors have an entire team of people doing due diligence. The high net worth investors have brokers who do all of their research for them. It's the mom and pop, the small you know, retail investors who maybe don't know mining very well or invested in our company because they heard about it in a newsletter or heard it from their cab driver and they're excited, but they don't know anything about the company. They're the people that need my support the most. And, and I think that's really important to make sure that you're giving every investor, regardless of their size, an equal amount of time. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, there's, and I think there's also a long tail value in that because there's a lot of, there's a lot of value in retail investors being long-term shareholders and they build into the story and they become, you know, highly, you know, they become real champions for, for companies that communicate well with them. Whereas I think that there's, and this is for, you know, speaking to operators of junior companies, public companies that there's this desire to always have institutional investors. You know, we, we're going after the institutions. One question is, are you ready for institutions? And the second is, if you don't have a good sticky retail base, one institutional investor can crush you overnight when they're just like, we're out of the sector. Yeah. Right? They, they hit, they'll relentlessly hit the sell button when they're moving on. And yeah. so, you know, and I'm thinking of this as a, in the form of, of, building companies in public markets and, and, and how investor relations plays a role to that. 
Well, I think the institutional investors bring credibility, right? If you've got big institutional investors and the usual suspects who invest in your space, it's sort of, you know that they've done an incredible amount of due diligence before they've taken that position. And so people who are looking at your ownership structure can kind of say, oh, well, if, you know, BlackRock invested, it must be a good company to invest in there for I will as well. They can kind of piggyback on that institution's um, due diligence process. But they, yeah, they're good. They're good or bad. They, a big, uh, chunky institutional investors, that's long only. You don't have any liquidity. They're going to hold your stock for four or five, six years, right? So you do need the hedge funds for liquidity and you do need those retail investors. They, they bring the liquidity because they're, you know, going to jump around based on what they're excited about that month. So, so you certainly need a good mix of both in the share price as well. And retail investors will follow you from company to company. Again, if you've built that relationship, they'll go, oh, wow, you're working where now? And then they're going to look at that stock and, and follow you there. Whereas the institutional investors, I don't think, would follow the people as much as the retail investors would. Hmm. Interesting. And, but retail investors, a lot of them invest because of newsletter writers, right? And so they may be following a certain, you know, they may be following your podcast and it's like, oh, Corey is, you know, <laughs> is recommending this company. So I'm going to invest in that company. But they can basically, if there's enough of them, if the newsletter writer has enough influence, the retail investors themselves can basically function like an institution. If that newsletter writer says buy, they're going to buy on mass. And if they sell, they're going to sell on mass. So I always caution people, never underestimate the ability of retail investors to move your share price. Because if there's enough of them working together, they basically function like an institution. Yeah, it's actually very true. And I mean, we, we all got a, a real taste of that during the whole kind of meme stock run there. Um, but I mean, when it comes to just building real companies, I think it's something that has to be valued. I just want to step back real quick. And, and for the lawyers and everybody out there, this is by no means financial advice. I am recommending no companies. Like that's not the purpose of this podcast, you know, all that. You know what I mean? Some people do, right? Some people yeah. follow. They follow someone that they think is give, has given them good advice historically, and they're just going to sort of blindly follow that advice. And if there's enough of them doing that, it is really basically like an institution. Yeah, yeah. Now, how have you seen investor relations change over your career? Well, again, it changes based on the size of the company that you're with. And so that, you know, changes who you're speaking with. It certainly changed significantly during the two-year COVID hiatus where we were no longer meeting in person and we were meeting over Zoom, which I found to be incredibly effective. Saved us a ton of money traveling all over the world. It saved us a ton of time because sitting on airplanes and in airports is not a good use of time. And it was great. We could like, I would never like fly my CEO to Singapore for one meeting, but I'll absolutely book a conference call in Singapore, right? So we got to reach a whole bunch of, of investor markets that we hadn't been to before. So that was fantastic. And it really, obviously, everybody's back to in-person meetings. But but I do find that we're getting a lot more inbound requests of people saying, hey, can I have a quick call or a quick chat or a quick Zoom call? So people are more comfortable now just picking up the phone or sending an email to request a meeting as opposed to waiting for a formal meeting at a conference or that's booked through a, through a non-deal roadshow. So that has changed to a certain extent. In my career, I guess probably the biggest change is social media. So you know, that didn't, again, I'm aging myself here, it didn't exist when I first started in the industry. And it, it just really, it probably started right around when I started working at Nova Gold in 2006. And I think I was one of the first adopters of social media. I think we started our first corporate Twitter and Facebook page around 2007 or 2008. And I by no means can take credit for being like ahead of the pack. There was a woman that worked on my team who was younger and much cooler than I am. And she's like, we really should be doing social media. It's a 
fantastic way to engage with the younger people and engage with the retail investors. And so I sort of reluctantly went along with it and we started this social media and I've always had a bit of a different approach to social media as well, where we actually use it as an interactive platform. So a lot of companies will post news to social media but not allow people to comment. And we always looked at it as an opportunity to engage with our investors. So if someone comments on a, on a post, even if it's negative, the fact that you can have that conversation with them in a public forum and hopefully turn it around into something positive or at least clarify the information so they've got all the information they need to make an investment decision, then I think that that's really valuable. And any conversation that you can have in public so that everybody's getting the same information. And like you said, everybody's getting a sense of who you are. Like you're getting to see my body language and, and the people that you're interacting with online, they're, they get to see a glimpse of the company that's more than just a press release. And I think that's incredibly valuable. So we have a very active social media presence now, not like we're just a team of two. So it's not like we're posting something every day, but we try to post a couple of times a week our corporate news and we do we also create content specifically for social media to sort of showcase that personal side of the company so we might you know write something up like a couple of like the last week I think it was we talked about how our one of our mine emergency rescue teams rescued a dog that had wandered onto the mine site and was stuck in one of the pits right so there's all these little good news stories or things that we're doing in the communities or, you know, things that we're doing for International Women's Day or, you know, World Environment Day. We create these special this special content just for social media to show that other side of the company that's not just boring financial press releases. It speaks to building a brand, an investor brand, not just boring financial press releases like I think too many companies get trapped in, but actually building around a brand that starts, you know, it helps interested eyes start to, you know, build their consideration and then helps those that are invested to stay invested. And, you know, it reminds me of a, I interviewed a a former Goldman Sachs banker and she said, the best of the best companies over communicate. And why not over communicate in ways that help build brand and investor brand? So that's, that's really interesting to hear. And uh, I don't, I don't see a lot of companies in your size really, really, truly engaging with social. So that's, that's, it's great to hear. Well, I think everybody posts to a certain extent and some people outsource it. And so then you're getting all sorts of stuff, you know, that's, that's incredibly beautiful. And I'm always jealous, but I don't have the budget for that. But I think most people don't engage on social media. And I think that was really important in the smaller companies, again, where you have a bigger retail audience is to actually allow them to ask questions and have those public conversations. I think that's incredibly valuable. And I do that, you know, we do the same thing for all of our webcasts, like, and I've always done this is is allow anybody to ask a question on the webcast, right? People normally just nail it to, you know, sort of nail it down to just institutional or analysts because they don't want some somebody asking a question that's potentially awkward. But the, the CEO's ability to deal with an awkward question or the CEO's ability to deal with an investor who's upset and to be able to be honest and transparent and compassionate and give valuable answers to that and hopefully turn that relationship around to do that in a public forum is incredibly valuable to the credibility of the company. Yeah, that's, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I, I I'm always curious why, companies are so afraid to to do that kind of thing to you know to be human and specifically public companies there's a there's it's like they're they're afraid of the lawyers and the regulators to to be human and well, nobody wants to nobody wants to get caught off guard or to uh answer something inappropriately or or just but we're all again like you said it's we're all these companies are all run by humans 
And um, if you're scripted, it's it's not genuine. Nobody believes you if you're scripting and just giving, you know, the same answer to every single question. There's no value in that. You could yeah. put it in a Have you ever watched any of the Netflix quarterly announcements or their, their annual um, conference calls? No. They're all basically filmed and they're just having a conversation. And then they bring in, you know, like they'll bring in, I think it was, I saw him with a JP Morgan analyst uh, and who facilitates a conversation. And it's just, it's really interesting. It's not reading off the scripted notes. It's the CEO and the, and the different executives who are playing, you know, key roles and initiatives they're doing who sit down and say, yeah, we're really excited about this and this and this, and here's what's happened. And it's a really interesting way about engaging the market for your quarterly and your annuals. Oh, that's great. I'll have a look at it. I mean, I, I mean they are most likely scripted um, in the background. Yes, within reason, yeah. But you've just made my point. Like the fact that they're willing to get on camera, even if they've practiced their answers 15 times, it comes across as something that's genuine and a conversation and accessible and open. And that's that's the value in that, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about kind of switching gears here. Definitely the mining industry and in traditionally kind of IR, the industry there has been in some ways old white men. How has it been having been a woman in the industry and really, I mean, somewhat, you know, a minority in the industry of, of, of mining? And how has that been and what advice do you have for, for potentially other women looking to be in the industry? I've always thought of it as an advantage, to be honest. Like if we're at a conference and there's a sea of men in blue suits and then there's me in my burgundy or my beige blazer or whatever, like who's going to stand out? Or if there's a, you know, a conference where there's a hundred people that give a podium presentation and I'm the only woman, which presentation are they going to remember? So I think it's incredibly valuable to be an anomaly in the industry. I still, to this day, get lots of, oh, wow, you really know your stuff comments, which is a little bit irritating because I don't think, I mean, I've been doing this, I've been in the industry for 27 years. I've been doing IR for 17 years. I should hope that I know my stuff by now. I'm a vice president. I think it's sort of built into my title that I probably know what I'm doing and they probably um, wouldn't comment to a man, oh, wow, you're really good at your job. (laughs) Yeah. But I try to just take it as a compliment. And that's fine. I do know my stuff. And that's great. And it's lovely that they noticed. So for women just starting out, I would say, like, look at it as an advantage. You are a bit of an anomaly, not so much in investor relations. There are more and more women in investor relations. It's certainly more common than when I started in 2006. But I do think it's an advantage. And I'd also say, don't be afraid to be yourself. Like, I'm a mother of three. And so I sort of feel like and act like the team mom at the office sometimes. Like if I bake cookies, I'll bring some into the office. And if I see someone who looks like they're super busy, I'll say, hey, I'm going to grab coffee. Do you want me to get you one? And at the beginning of my career, people would say, oh, never do that. Like never bring bacon to the office. People will think that you're in a support role. Never offer to grab lunch. People will start asking you to do it and treat you like a secretary. And I decided very early on to just embrace that that's who I am. I like supporting people. I like making them feel better if they're stressed or busy. And I think it just makes me a good team player. Like I like being the person who will do whatever it takes to make the team successful. If that means I got to go grab lunch, I'm totally happy to do that. And now the guys offer to grab me a cup of coffee or lunch if they see that I'm really busy. So I think 
you know, for everyone just starting out, whether it's a woman or a man, I'd say like, just be yourself, work hard, always be kind and always focus on the success of the team. And that's going to be your best way to the top. Like I remember once being frustrated that my CEO wasn't asked, you know, it was sort of, I didn't feel like he was using me to my full capabilities. This is at a different job. And a friend of mine said, your job is to make him look better, right? So if, what he wants you to do is spreadsheets that day and that's what he needs that your only job in the world is to make your team more successful make your team better and that was incredibly helpful advice to me so you know i think we all end up doing jobs we don't want to and sometimes you know you can get your your ego in a way can get in can get in the way of recognizing really what you're there to do and so i i hear what you're saying there and um and I can appreciate the the fact that like, you know, at times you get some people coming by and saying some comments, especially perhaps they've got a paradigm in their head of they only see men in this industry, you know, oh, it's nice to see that you're, you know what you're saying, but like, just turn that around and, 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 I do know what I'm and don't yeah. take offense. Yeah. Thanks for noticing. And, and I, I sort of, as a woman too, and especially again, we meet with a bit of a different name or a very different name. It's multiple opportunities to surprise somebody. So again, the Number one thing I have to do is make people remember my stock and remember the stories that they, they will consider buying it or at least follow the story, right? So if they've taken a meeting with this person called Berlin Bailey, they don't know what to expect. So when I walk into the door and I'm a woman, they're perhaps surprised to start with. So that's the first sort of thing that they're going to remember. Oh, the meeting was with a woman. And then when I sit down and I actually do know what I'm talking about, that's the second opportunity to surprise them. They're like, oh, this woman who looks you know well maybe I don't look younger than I am anymore but I used to so they're like so it's a woman and she looks quite young but wow she actually knows what she's talking about so like it's constantly them sort of reassessing what their expectations were for the meeting and then when it turns out that the story about the company is also incredibly compelling they're like oh wow this is actually is a legitimate company that I should be following and interested in so it's sort of multiple opportunities in every meeting for them to sort of recalibrate and reconsider what their original expectations were and then that's going to make them it be the meeting that stands out for the week so I don't know you anything you've got use it to your advantage yeah I really appreciate that and don't look at it as a, as a disadvantage or don't, don't think that because it's, you know, an industry dominated by men that there isn't a way to succeed. Clearly there is. And I think it has changed. I think at the very beginning, yeah, I think there was, I think there was harder for women to get ahead. I'm, it's not a hundred percent. We're not a hundred percent equity these days, but it's certainly significantly changed from where it was 17 years ago when I started. And hopefully my daughter will never have to have these conversations because it won't even be an issue that she's a woman in the industry. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Let's talk about actually pitching a story, pitching a mining story. And I know this is very just, you know, high level, but how do you approach it, especially with Equinox getting in to develop new relationships? And how do you get beyond just inflation, bad, gold, good? Like, what is the pitch to, to something like Equinox? How do you structure that and deliver that narrative for, for the investors you're going after? Well, we're actually just going through or just considering doing a remessaging right now because we do sort of need to go back and, and what's our why? My CEO said, you got to listen to this podcast called Start With Why. And it's just like, it's not, everybody tells sort of what they're doing and how they're doing it, but why are you doing it? And then I, you know, it's going back to the roots of why I joined this company, right? They were building something big and they were excited about it. And they have this vision of building a big, profitable, sustainable, responsible gold company. So that's why we're doing this, right? So just to sort of flip our messaging on the, on its head and say, 
why what we're doing like sorry now i'm even getting myself confused but like why are we building this we want to build the premier america's gold producer how are we doing it you know by collecting all of these assets that have built this incredibly strong foundation that gives us this foundation to grow and then sort of what's going to happen in the next few years that means you should invest now as opposed to just waiting and watching so we have you know all of these catalysts coming up we're building this big mine in ontario we've got growth coming from our assets in mexico and brazil so so sort of starting with the why you should be interested in this company and then how are we doing it and what does it mean to you to consider investing today is sort of how we're start trying to re-message it because there's so many choices out there right there's a I don't know how many mid-tier gold producers they could choose to invest in why should they invest in Equinox Gold and we really do have more growth built into the profile than any other company out there in our sector, but it also means more risk, right? So you have to, you know, when you're pitching to investors, you had to, you have to think about what their investment strategy is as well, right? Like some people would rather just take a dividend today. Uh, you know, my parents, I would never tell my parents to invest in this stock because this is a long-term horizon value add. We're going to grow and add value over the next four to six years you know, they should be investing in a blue chip stock that's going to be paying them a dividend every month for the next four to six years. So you have to sort of choose who you're pitching to and then um, and then sort of work the the message into something that makes sense for their investment strategy. And I think that's another really important thing in meetings is not you can never just walk into a meeting and do a deck flip front to back. Right. Like I would walk in and I say, what do you want to achieve in this meeting today? Like, why did you agree to sit down with us? And what do you want to accomplish in the next 20 to 45 minutes that we've got together? And then make sure that we address their objectives, not ours. Because there's nothing worse than going through a presentation and somebody asks the question and the presenter's like, oh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. No, they've asked it now. Talk about it now. You have to. Yeah, and I when I was first starting out in investor relations, I felt like a bit like a used car salesman. I'm like, come oh, on, every single time I have a meeting, I'm telling the story differently. I feel like I'm spinning it. Like I felt like I wasn't being genuine because it was always a different pitch coming out of my mouth. But then I realized it was different every time because everybody I met with had a different objective. Right. Some of them want to talk about ESG. Some yeah. of them want to talk about growth. Some of them want to talk about finances. Like everybody has a different list of questions that they want to go through. And it's important, I think, to make sure that you're addressing what that particular investor wants to talk about. I think that's really important advice for companies out there that are either looking to engage investors or raise capital is, is recognizing that that you have to, to, to step into that boardroom and, and be a chameleon to the audience within reason of who you are. Yeah. And it took, it took a little while for me to figure that out. But yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I also think it's interesting of, of looking at a mining company and, and you know, your, your CEO, who I believe Greg Smith is saying, listen to this podcast. We have to start with why. We have to look at this differently. And, and, and the reason why I say this is because I, I think that there's, a, there's an amazing opportunity to be differentiated with, with companies. And it's because I, I always say emotion trumps logic. And when you're initiating a relationship, you can't come out with all the logic. Nobody is going to give you the time. But if you can hook them with some emotion and bring them in and say, no, there's something more here than just the numbers, but the numbers support that feeling, that good feeling, then you're you're a leg up to your company or your competitors. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, and that everybody has a different strategy, a different objective, right? 
so we're building the, you know, we're creating the, the premier America's gold producer, but why that matters is different for our community partners than it is for our investors, right? Our community partners, it means we're going to bring you like jobs and opportunities and social benefits and improved healthcare and skills building, like training. That means you can go and, you know, when this mine closes in 10, 20, 30 years, you can take those skills and use it somewhere else. Or we, you know, we do entrepreneurship programs where people can, we actually encourage them and, and help them to build a business that's going to support the mine that will support other businesses in the, you know, in, in the region. Like, so that's the that's the why for the communities but then for our shareholders it's like well you know we're hoping to grow and add value and you know that as every time we achieve an important corporate milestone hopefully the share price revalues and ultimately we'll be paying a dividend and you know so it's a different even for those two you know two important stakeholders it's a very different message and a very different strategy and then for our workforce right why do you want to come and work for us we're nothing unless we have an incredibly talented workforce come and work for us because we're this incredible you know this group of energized enthusiastic decent people with a ton of integrity who are really trying to do something good and we're going to create a workforce an an employment opportunity that's safe and healthy and and valuable and you feel valued and you get to participate and bring your ideas to the table those are all the things that we need to make sure that we're nurturing and messaging for our workforce so that we do have the skills that we need and the enthusiasm that we need to be able to get us through this you know next 5 years of another 5 years that are going to be very very busy and growth focused so from your vantage point as a couple billion dollar mining company, uh, gold company and or mining company, resource company, what advice do you have for the juniors, those who are looking to build those investor relationships? And we did touch on it in, in you know, adjusting your pitch and adjusting your narrative, but how else do you build meaningful relationships with investors? What tips or tricks do you have? For like a junior company that's just starting out, oh geez. Well, again, go back to the people that you've worked with historically. Leverage your relationships. Leverage people that know you and know your credibility and know your integrity because they're going to be your first, your first resources, right? Like the friends and family. But but from an you know from a from a corporate perspective, like a public market perspective. Yeah, like, you know, people that have worked with you historically, well, the fact the very fact that you're working at this company shows that you think it's a good company with potential, therefore, they're going to take a look at it, right? There used to be a ton of conferences, and there's less now, like in, in the olden days, there used to be a conference circuit with probably 20 mining conferences a year. And now it's really been whittled down to sort of three or four big ones, but certainly look at the conferences and get out there and get in front of people like people are only going to buy your stock if they know about it right so you have to get out there and tell the story and in that sense i think every single meeting is valuable you know even if you meet with an institutional investor and the institution chooses not to invest in your stock that fund manager is him or herself an, a retail investor right so every meeting is worth taking and a lot of people when they're looking at setting up meetings they're like oh i don't want to meet with that investor they only have $5 million assets under management, who cares? $5 million is $5 million. And if they have a great meeting with you, or if they invest and make a little bit of money with you, or, or you know, are excited about the story, they're going to tell 20 other people, right? So yeah, I think just like, don't devalue a, a retail investor because they might only have 500 shares. Every meeting is, is worth taking the time because it's telling your story. If they if they're in, interested and excited, they're going to tell a few more people when they're having dinner that night. Like so, it's always worth just sort of getting out there and spreading the word. 
you do need to knock on a lot of doors and do some cold calling, unfortunately, when you're starting out, which is hard to do, like just to put yourself out there. And even now, geez, if someone, if I request a meeting at a conference and somebody turns it down, I always take it personally, like, I don't know why. <laughs> and if someone says yes, I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's not about me, but you know, so it's hard to get turned down for those meetings, but you still got to keep trying. I don't know if, if phone or email is better or maybe email followed up by a phone call. I don't know. There's that fine line between like getting out there and telling the story and stalking people. But really that's the only way to do it when you're just starting out. There's, I, I can't remember who said it, but there's a, there's a, a saying, and this isn't for, for public markets, but just in building companies in general, but it's uh, if you haven't marketed hard enough to, or if you haven't offended somebody with your marketing today, you're not <laughs> marketing hard enough. And so I kind of look at that. I'm like, okay, you know, potentially applicable to IR. That's a tough one though. Like when you said, like someone said, it, you know, you can't over communicate. I don't necessarily agree with that. Like okay. there are companies that put out a press release every week. At some point, nobody cares anymore. Like I think you do need to curate mm. your news and curate your communication so that they're valuable to people. You don't want to be wasting people's time. And if you're spamming them with news that isn't relevant, at some point they're just going to stop reading it. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and, I think one of my critiques of, of, of public company communication is just the, you know, blast out a black and white press release and think you did it. Like yeah. it's, it's not the quickest way to bore somebody is to send them another one of those. So, but yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there and I, I can understand why you would, you would not exactly uh, agree with that, that statement. I think it's also important when you're starting out, like they say, dress for the job that you want. I think like hang out with the, or like sort of, brand the company like make sure that that the way that you're portraying your company is sort of one step ahead of where you are so like if you want people to see you you want them to see who you're going to be in the future because that's what they're investing in right nobody's investing in your stock for today they're investing in the value that it might bring to them a week or six months or a year or 10 years from now right so give them a glimpse of what this company is going to be in the future. So when we, you know, when we were looking at which conferences to attend when we were a smaller company, I would never go to a conference where it was all little tiny penny stocks because I didn't want to be playing in that sandbox. I wanted them to see us as one tier above those, those companies. Right. And so I think that was a big, played a big part in the strategy when we were just building this company. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. Um, I'm curious about, the tools you use. We had David White from Irwin on uh, on the podcast and him talking about really the use of a CRM and a populated CRM with all that data to reach out and, and use it, use technology to, to create better relationships. And I'm like, this is phenomenal. Yeah. What kind of tools do you use? How do you develop new relationships? Well, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that I still I do have those tools like Irwin's amazing. And there's Iprio and there's a couple of other ones out there as well. And I always do have a CRM. I do not even remotely use it to its full capacity because I'm a dinosaur and I track everything in an Excel spreadsheet because I just (laughs) I've done it literally since the beginning of time. And it's just it's just comfortable to me. So, but those, those are incredible tools and I do use them all the time. If I'm planning a roadshow, like let's say, you know, we're going to New York for a conference or for whatever in, in the banks, because we do have 11, we have the luxury of having 11 banks covering us. They will set up a bunch of meetings for us, but I always want to make sure there's nobody that we're missing. 
And so I'll run, you know, I'll hop into those databases and run a search of who the investors are in the region. And I'll either reach out myself or, or give those names to the bank so that they can set up those meetings for us. So um, I do do a lot of research for who's invested in our peers and who happens to be um, relevant in the, in the areas that we're attending so that we can try to, you know, expand our, our investor reach. Yeah, so those tools are used for sort of tracking who our shareholders are, tracking buying and selling. Um, if there's a surprise movement in the share price that day, we have uh, access to a thing called TSX Info Suite because we're TSX listed. So I can look and see where the buying or selling is coming from. And if it's a, a bank that we know, we could reach out and see if they know what's happening. If it's a big block, that's if we see a lot of pressure on the stock selling, we could see if we could help to place that block to a happy long-term home, things like that, or just to have the you know, if the, if this, all of the, if our, our share price is moving a lot, I'll go to look to see if the market in general is moving, right? If all of our peers are up or down, I don't worry about it too much if we're trading in tandem with the sector in general. And that's incredibly valuable for me when investors call, they're like, oh my goodness, why is the share price down 10% today or whatever? And I'm like, well, look, you got to look at it in the context of the market. Like all of the gold stocks are off you know, 10 to 15% today. So we're absolutely trading in tandem with our peers and it's nothing that's isolated to our company or I can give them the perspective of, hey, yeah, okay, it's down 10% this month, but look at what it's done over the last 12 months or, you know, 16 months or whatever and give them a perspective because I think people often get tunnel vision and just focus on the, the stock that they're invested in and don't understand that our share price is influenced by so many things that are out of our control, right? The gold price obviously is the biggest share price movement. But if our peers are having a good day or a bad day and, or put out good news or bad news, that can influence us or even, you know, global turmoil, the, the war in Ukraine and just macroeconomics and inflation and the US dollar, like there's so many things that that influence the, the price of a gold company that go way, way beyond our actual corporate news. And people forget that. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that, that that's very true. And it's, it's, yeah, lots of technology out there, but I also understand the the stick with the Excel spreadsheet uh, spreadsheet well, at times. Don't no, <laughs> nobody should be doing that. They should absolutely be using Urban and Iprio and doing those email blasts and tracking it far more effectively than I do. But the yeah. other thing I do is I run a lot of share price charts, and again, I run it so I run our share price against gold, against GDX, GDXJ, and against a basket of peers. And okay. so I can show, give my team and also investors the perspective of how we're performing in relation to the industry and our peers in general. And it's always good to give people that sort of bigger perspective. Yeah. And that context, you know, I love hearing these things and in, in the interviews I've, I've done, and we did one with a gentleman who's, who's doing, doing a lot of interesting work in the diamond space. And he talked about in one of his previous companies and just, this isn't directly related, but it's one of these tips. He used to have the not yet a shareholder letter. And so he would be sharing this with his potential shareholders, potential investors of the future, the not let a, not yet a shareholder letter. And just as a tip or a trick, I just thought that was so novel. And your point there of just consistently being able to communicate like a number of charts or a number of, of different variables in a single chart to just say, hey, this is where we're at. You know, this is what's happening and give context within the broad market is a very fast way to communicate. Uh, so I, I appreciate that calling you because they just want you to uh, alleviate their concerns, right? Like nobody ever calls me if the share price is going up. They call me if the share price is going down and they just, they 
I think their number one thing is, are you still answering the phone? Like, are you hiding? Or are you actually still taking calls? Right. <laughs> That's mm. they just, like, just the fact that you answer the phone is enough. They're like, oh, great. You're there. That's wonderful. But then just, yeah, because we are immersed in this industry. We know what our peers are doing. We are, we're tracking the share price. We know all of these things. But people are other people don't have that same visibility to the industry as a whole and so that's why they call us right is what's what on earth is going on why is the sky falling well actually it's not this is what's happening oh that's great you know and then they're happy so i want to take us back to earlier in your career i think it was plaster dome days uh and uh i think it was a hostile takeover bid and what you learned from that like kind of the how busy that time was and what you what you took from kind of those hostile takeover bid days because it's uh, it can whip a, a company into to a real tizzy. Well, I wasn't doing IR when I was at Plaster. I was in the finance group. So what the hostile takeover bid did for us at Plaster was it just brought the team together. Like, you know, you're <laughs> that it was an unusual company. I don't know. I, I think it, I think it was the takeover bid that brought everybody together. But case in point, we still have an annual Plaster Dome reunion, which I've actually just taken over uh, organizing. We all get together once or twice a year. So even though that company ceased to exist in 2006, you go anywhere and you say that you're Plaster Dome alumni and it's like you've got instant friends. Right. And we still have an annual. Why did Plaster? Why does Plaster have such a legacy? It's, it's yeah, there's something it there. The world, it was the world's biggest gold mining company at the time, right? So Barrick was smaller than Plaster when it took us out. Hmm. It just, I don't know. It was just, again, it was like the people. It was just this incredible group of people that were just decent human beings that worked hard. And and I think the takeover bid did sort of like congeal everybody. Like it really brought the team together because we were working together against this common enemy, not that Barrick's an enemy, but you know what I mean? Nobody wants to see their may come to an end like that but yeah just incredibly hard-working genuine people like I think that was the key thing I don't know and I have incredible fondness for Placer Dome too again because of my environmental background and we were like the CEO when I first started there John Wilson was decades not maybe not decades so far ahead of his time from a sustainability perspective and from a human resources perspective like he was one of the first CEOs I, that I know of in the industry to insist that we consider sustainability um, in the way that we were approaching mine development and things like that. And and the the man who hired me for my three day contract, Jim Cooney, has was just just been inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame for his leadership from a sustainability perspective to the industry. And he was at Placer at the time, so I don't know. It was just a fantastic group of people. But the funny story, so I so Placer was not successful in its in its attempts to deter bear and it's hostile bid and and we closed the doors in 2006 and there's actually a picture of me literally locking the treasury room door I was the last person to leave and then a week later I transitioned over to Nova Gold and the day before I started at Nova Gold Plaster Dome put in a hostile takeover bid and I'm like are you kidding me like I just (laughs) I just went through this and now there's a hostile bid for for Nova Gold and I was super excited because it was sort of my dream job right like I was getting my crack at a job in communications and I was super excited about it. I had no experience in IR. I just was a smart person who could write and had a, you know, a diverse background. So I thought I was going to lose my job at Nova Gold as well. I'm like, well, my only experience of a hostile takeover bid is that the company gets taken over and you're out of work. So I'm like, I don't, I figured they, I would show up and they would tell me they didn't need me. So I 
did, I pretended that I didn't know about the takeover bid and I showed up to work pretending I didn't know anything about this so that they couldn't at least tell me not to come. And that shows how little I knew about investor relations because there is literally no busier time for investor relations than during a hostile takeover bid, right? So they were like, oh, thank goodness you're here. Like put me to work instantly. And I was writing, I had no investor relations experience. I was writing press releases from like the second day that I was there, right? Because the the VP of IR was out talking to shareholders, trying to defend this bid. So I was like, it was like hit the ground running. And I learned more in those four months of investor relations during a hostile bid than I would have learned in four years. Because there was no time to like, let's see what this person can do and, you know, give her small jobs and see if she can handle them. It was just like, you go and do this and do it to the best of your ability. Thank you very much. I'll see you in a month kind of thing. So it was amazing. And again, it, it brought the team together, right? Like, so this, we were a pretty small team, maybe 20 people, but it was just like, those are people that I'll be friends with for life because we, we fought together in the trenches for this common against this common enemy and we succeeded. So Nova Barrick did not take over Nova Gold. Wow. You know, it is, it is pretty fun. Your, your stories there bring some memories of mine when I first got into the business community and I was doing mergers and acquisitions internally for Agrium. So I was an analyst with a team of seven and we would report directly to the CEO, $10 billion company that we'd always be looking at different acquisitions and, and also keeping tabs on what was happening in the market. And we were at an offsite at the Banff Springs Hotel with a small group of people of the executives of the company. And then the executive vice president who I was sitting right next to at dinner gets up with his Blackberry, walks down to the end, taps another guy, one of the directors. And before you know it, we're all sitting in a small room because one of our biggest competitors did a hostile bid on another one of our competitors. And now we were looking to do the white knight and step in okay. and, and kind of save the day. And so then goes in, you know, to, to many, many long nights, lots of numbers crunched, lots of meetings with different people and, and you know, the bankers and all that. And, and it's, it's, in a way, it's empire building in, in the business world. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, they were the enemy, but yeah, hey, you know what? It's just the game of chess we're all playing in our industry. So your, your fondness there brought about a lot of memories. Well, and anytime you're working as a team, again, this all comes down to teamwork. Anytime you're working as a team for a common objective, it's incredibly invigorating, right? So whether the objective is building a mine or, or you know, defending yourselves against a takeover bid or whatever it is, anytime you come together as a group and you're all pulling in the same direction, it just makes it more fun. Like, you know, we've done a couple of mergers since since I've been with Equinox Gold. And so they're not, we were the acquirer, like we were the lead company. So it was, and they were not hostile by any sense, but there's still always this unease in the company because whenever you're merging two companies, there's always redundancy, right? There's always someone else doing your job on the other side and people start to get anxious about who's going to end up on top, right? Who's going to end up being the, the person that carries on in the new company and, and investor relations were basically like the company bartender. So people come and sit in my office and they like tell me their woes and I, you know, I try to support them and offer them a cup of tea or whatever they need. But I, my advice always is like in every single meeting you have, be kinder, be smarter, be harder working, and you will always be the successor, right? Like, but I think this, the, it's always the kindness. And I think that goes back to me, like always 
being being willing to do whatever it takes to support the team to be successful, right? So in every interaction, if someone's angry or someone's stressed, you have a choice of how you're going to react to that. And if you always just revert to kindness and support and, you know, what, what do I, what do you need for me to get through this? Like, that's one of the first questions I ask when somebody's stressed, how can I support you? Right. But I'm like, I told people that time and again, during the last merger, I'm like, just be kinder, smarter, and harder working in every single meeting. Just keep that top of mind, and we're going to be fine, and we work. It's really fascinating. I didn't expect our conversation to go this direction, and 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 I've really enjoyed it. I can't believe we've already hit an hour here. So <laughs> it went quick. Um, let's aim to wrap it up. And have you got any final thoughts for for the audience, for the CEOs and IR pros out there who are building their companies in the markets. Yeah. Any final thoughts from the experience you've had? Well, I used it up earlier by accident where it's, it's really always comes down to the every investor matters. So, yeah, you know, mm. every investor matters, always be accessible, always be willing to answer people's questions no matter how inane they seem, right? Everybody's, you never know what somebody's knowledge base is. You never know what their personal circumstances are. You never know what their investment objectives are. You never know what, background they have? Do they understand what they've invested in? Do they not? Everybody deserves your time and and an answer to their questions to the best of your ability. And, and in investor relations in particular, again, for somebody who's just starting out, like we are not expected to, nor can we possibly know every single thing about the company, right? Our job, we're like the information finders, right? So if someone comes to you with a question, it's absolutely okay to go, you know what, I have no idea, but let me find out. And then you go and find out and then you get back to them. So now not only have you shown that you're capable of finding their answers and that the fact that they asked you a question is important to you because you followed up, but it's a second point of contact. So now you're building the relationships, which are so important. You've shown credibility, like, so you've shown all of the things that matter when you're building that supportive shareholder base. So don't, don't ever think that you need to have all the answers. And, you know, again, for an investor relations person starting out, like you don't need to have the answers to every meeting that you go into, but work hard and listen and, and bring solutions to the table and find the information that you need to make the team successful. I think that's what we're all trying to do is build a successful company, which starts with a successful, supportive, hardworking team. None of that made any sense, but that's my wrap up thoughts. <laughs> no, I get you. I get where you're going with that. And, you know, I also <laughs> want to share that to wrap this up, I didn't expect this, but I got an insight into the culture and to the, the environment, which is Equinox Gold, which I didn't, I did not expect that. And, and it's really interesting and really cool to hear about a team and a culture and, and the people there that are building and, and have a purpose of building a real long-term and and sustainable company there so that's that's very cool Rilyn, thank you for your time my pleasure thank you for inviting me thanks for listening to this episode of the insider's guide to finance if you enjoyed what you heard please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well you can also subscribe and leave a review on itunes or the play store your support there is really appreciated For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.